I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. They've got to get a deal on the debt ceiling. And President Trump is being non-committal tonight, just as the clock ticks down to August recess. Secretary Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, they say, reportedly, they've got a deal on the debt ceiling. We'll break down all of the policy specifics, plus still... More fallout between President Trump and the squad. We'll dive into whether or not there are any policy implications on that front. And at the White House earlier today, Pakistani Prime Minister Khan meeting with President Trump to discuss a host of different geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Are the Pakistanis going to be more supportive of the United States? And how will President Trump respond to that? All of that plus Huawei developments. Will U.S. businesses get to do business with Huawei? We have an all-star panel here to break down the policy, the politics, and the personalities. Sahil Kapoor, Bloomberg News national political correspondent. Lauren Zelt, Republican strategist, founder of Zelt Communications, co-founder, I believe, co-founder of Zelt Communications. Nina Turner is going to call in. She's the national co-chair of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. And Daniel Lippmann. Daniel Lippmann is back in the House fresh off of his job promotion at Politico. He is now a White House reporter for Politico. All right, busy day at the White House today as President Trump met with Pakistani Prime Minister Khan. We'll get into the geopolitical fallout for all of the that. Uh, but it was also a busy day with regards to the debt ceiling, and that's where I want to begin. Why? Because we're just ahead of the August recess, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, as well as Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, have been back and forth, back and forth, all on the phones for the past week or so, trying to get a deal on the debt ceiling. Now, there's a story out on the Bloomberg Terminal which suggests that President, Tr- or that, which suggests that Secretary Mnuchin and Speaker Pelosi have agreed to some type of two-year extension with regards to the debt ceiling. But the big question mark is whether or not President Trump is going to sign off on it. Daniel Lippmann is a White House reporter for Politico. Lauren Zelt is a Republican strategist and co-founder of Zelt Communications. And Sahil Kapoor is Bloomberg News national political correspondent. Sahil, first question. Will President Trump sign off on the deal that his Treasury Secretary has reportedly made with Speaker Pelosi? I think, Kevin, this is a question that markets are itching to know. 
Nobody quite knows what the president will do. He moves back and forth sometimes from a stated position, much like the last budget deal where he swerved at the last second, ended up shutting down the government, and uh, created a lot of consternation for his allies as well as markets. Now, the president has made very clear he wants the debt limit raised. This is not... Uh, this is not a game of chicken that he wants to play or that anybody really wants to play because the, con uh, the consequences are so catastrophic. The question is, does he want a debt limit increase? Absolutely yes. Is he going to be comfortable with these spending levels? Probably not. But how far does he want to push this? But I doubt to the brink. But see, Lauren, I, I respectfully, like, I, I get what Sahil's saying, but then there's, like, another side of me that is, that is like, given the backdrop of the squad versus President Trump, <laughs> given the backdrop of the immigration issue and Stephen Miller's out on Fox with Chris with Chris Wallace over the weekend. I I don't know. This president doesn't seem like someone to shy away from a fight and the debt ceiling and defaulting on uh, on the nation's uh, on the nation's credit rating. I mean, he, it would he would be able to hammer hammer Democrats and say, well, they're not taking care of veterans. I think that's right, but I think that also at this point the president is, given all of this fighting that we're seeing at the moment, I think he is hungry for a political win, and I think basically everybody agrees that you know if an agreement is not reached, um, the, the consequences could be disastrous. I mean, you know, look from a conservative perspective, though, I have to say you're going to see more conservative members of Congress. Um, they've already come out and said that they're unhappy um, with what they've heard about the potential agreement reached between Secretary Laura, Mnuchin. Laura, they're not just unhappy; they're livid. Yeah, they're livid. The Freedom Caucus can't stand this. They only got half. I'm serious. <laughs> According to this story on the Bloomberg Terminal by Eric Wasson and Salam. Awesome. They're saying that Republicans are only going to get, are you ready for this, just about half, half of the savings that they sought. Mm -hmm. from, from a, I put the same question, and I apologize for interrupting, no. but I put this question to special counsel to the president, Kellyanne Conway, earlier today uh, on the Pebble Beach. It's called, you know, like that, yeah. that strip of, that goes into the White House. I said, is this something that the president can sign off on? Take a listen to what she told me. I'm aware of it, and I cannot comment on it. Uh, we'll see what the president has to say, but I think he's made his spending priorities are very obvious. He will always support more money for the military, and the last two measures the president signed into law did exactly that. She doesn't sound like she doesn't sound like she's got the pen out for Trump to sign. Well, she doesn't, but the reality of the situation is, look, we have to go back to the fact that Donald Trump is not really a conservative. He was a Democrat for many years, and in this instance, he's hungry for a deal. Um, and I think that, yes, the Freedom Caucus is going to continue to bark, as will most conservatives. I'd actually be curious to see what the reaction to this is from the Heritage Foundation, mm. because they have been cheering on a lot of the president's policies. But, you know, on matters of fiscal conservatism, I mean, this deal that, you know, apparently has been reached um, is not considered to be fiscally conservative in the slightest. But I, I ultimately think that the president will sign it. He will tout it as a win, and he will likely continue these other political fights um, simultaneously. Let me get nerdy here. Deal or no deal? I think there's going to be a deal because uh, Trump doesn't want to default uh, on our debt. Uh, he would view that as negative for his reelection chances. Uh, and he doesn't care that much about fiscal responsibility, that tax cut that they uh, signed uh, you know, a year or two ago, that w was not good for our uh, deficit and our debt. Uh, and, and this is a guy who was a liberal Democrat, you know, 20 years ago, uh, and only switched to being a Republican when Barack Obama entered the scene. Uh, and so he's not a core conservative in caring too much about fiscal responsibility. Uh, and 
the government has never had more red ink than it yeah. has today. Yeah, so there's a lot of market jitters in terms of watching this, as Sahil Kapoor, Bloomberg News National political reporter, pointed out. Uh, I'm just going through some of these numbers. It would be a $17 billion increase for defense, $17 billion increase for domestic programs in 2020 over 2019 levels. That gives Democrats the parity they sought for increases in both categories of spending. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, well, he had this to say about it. Take a listen. We're willing to go a good ways, but um, the bottom line is the administration has to compromise as well. It seems when Mr. Mulvaney gets involved, they ask for things that are outlandish. Well, that was, I mean, he's, he's referencing there a point that Lauren Zelt, co-founder of Zelt Communications, a Republican strategist, just made, which is essentially Mick Mulvaney was in the Freedom Caucus. He was one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, uh, and but when he was a congressman before he has become the president's chief of staff. Coming up. We're going to talk more politics, more policy, panel stays. You can download the Sound On podcast by downloading Apple iTunes. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm not going to be watching Mueller uh, because uh, you can't take all those bites out of the apple. We had uh, no collusion, no obstruction. Well, I guess that continues to talk. President Trump, I guess for what it's worth, he's not going to be watching special counsel Bob Mueller, who was scheduled to appear before two House committee or before the House Judiciary Committee and then the House Intelligence Committee later this week. We'll be watching, Mr. President. We'll be covering it live from Capitol Hill. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm joined by Sahil Kapoor, Bloomberg News National Political Correspondent. Lauren Zelt, Republican strategist, founder of Zelt Communications, and Dan Littman, Dan Littman, who was just promoted to White House reporter at Politico. Congrats on that, Mr. Littman. Thank you, Kevin. All right, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, developments on the trade front this week, Lauren, uh, today in particular. So we, we started the day when I was at the White House when we got word that there were going to be representatives from tech companies, including Qualcomm, at the White House meeting with top administration officials about what? You guessed it, Huawei. Huawei, as we all know, is a China telecommunications giant that many in the intelligence community have raised national security concerns, as have Democrats and Republicans up on Capitol Hill. The president has said, in trying to get a deal with the Chinese, that he would be willing to allow U.S. businesses to do business with Huawei, provided provided the Chinese make additional agricultural purchases, i.e. help out the farmers. Is this smart policy? You know, from my perspective, I've been focused on the reports uh, today that Huawei is uh, involved in building uh, telecommunications in North Korea. I think given the president's uh, tough stance on North Korea, um, you know, I think you've seen a lot of criticism of him, you know, perhaps being too close, um, you know, with that administration. But I I do think he's trying to take a hard line on North Korea. So I think that the the news out of the White House today um, regarding any potential deals that would um, enable U.S. businesses to do uh, business with Huawei, it 
makes me nervous that they are engaging with North Korea. And, and this is something that we've been that has been under investigation since at least 2016. And Sahil Kapoor, I mean, Laura makes such a great a great point in terms of just how this has raised consistent bipartisan national security concerns. But from the White House perspective, I mean, it's not like the Europeans are, are following the, the, the U.S. lead and not doing business with Huawei. It's not like the Europeans are backing off. So, I mean, this is a fascinating, shifting, shifting debate, no, especially as we try to lay the groundwork for 5G technology. Yeah, it certainly bolsters the idea of uh, Huawei as a national security threat, as the United States government has determined if the United States' strategy is to isolate North Korea until it changes its behavior. And here we have Huawei using, uh, you know, basically funneling uh, resources to North Korea to help them in this regard. So it does create a complex situation for President Trump, who is trying to make overtures to North Korea. He's talked about the love, I'm, I'm literally quoting here, the love that he and Kim Jong-un have shared. Um, it, creates, it creates a bit of a dilemma here. How hard does he push on Huawei? What are the consequences there with China? And if he doesn't, what does that mean for, for his strategy with North Korea? I mean, Huawei, when I interviewed Senator Rubio the other week, I mean, Huawei was making a play for Venezuela. Take a listen to what President Trump had to say about all this. He says it's about 5G technology. Here he is. I know all about it. I know all about Huawei. I know all about uh, 5G, and uh, we're working on it. And we have companies that are now getting very, very strong in that department. Yeah, and we're going to have 5G. We're going to have the best 5G in the world, just like we have everything else. Our silicone... Silicon Valley cannot be competed with. Silicon Valley is, is in a tough spot here, though, Sahil, because they've got, to, they've got to navigate, number one, the Trump White House and the Trump tweets, number two, but also the, laying the groundwork for 5G. I mean, that's what this is about. It's who's going to have the upper hand when it comes to 5G technology. And do you work with Huawei? Do you, I mean, all out, we all know what Google ran into with China. So they're in a really tough spot. Yeah, I think it's consistently a challenge for Silicon Valley to try to predict this White House. I think it's consistently a challenge for various sectors of the economy, as I think we're seeing in, 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 many, in many facets of the Washington debate, including the debt limit, including um, the president's policy with technology, including his kind of back and forth with social media companies. He's, he's hit on this thread of them being... Uh, biased toward his political movement toward conservatives, debatable to say the least, but um, you know, that's kind of his approach. So it's, it's a new layer in these challenges that Silicon Valley has to face with the White House. The, the U.S. perspective, the, their, their concerns with Huawei are, are well documented. It dates all the way back, I believe, to like 2010 or 2011, uh, even in the Obama administration, that they've, they've sought for restructuring of Huawei's corporate governance. They've sought for uh, more transparency at the company. Uh, they've alleged, essentially, that this is a China state-run operation. But this is really, uh, in the 5G fight, I mean, this is reality now, Lauren, because they've got to decide... If you don't do business with Huawei, I mean, there's significant risk, especially if Europe is and especially if emerging markets. I don't know if I can call North Korea an emerging market yet, but I mean, they're they're trying to penetrate those areas. Sure. Well, you know, as any corporation does, they're trying to expand their business as much as they can. I mean, I, I just think that the idea of engaging on something as important as 5G, um, you know, with a company like Huawei, given these 
you know, pretty significant national security concerns. I mean, all I've been thinking in the back of my head is America first. And this just doesn't seem like a very much America first policy to me. And I just, you know, I, I, I'm not a Silicon Valley expert, but I, I think that the president needs to tread lightfully here or tread lightly politically, because I think that there is a, a lot of potential for danger here, um, especially as we learn more about their dealings with North Korea. I wonder what Senator Rand Paul thinks, since he's <laughs> essentially the co State Department Secretary of State. All right, coming up, we're going to talk politics. Get this. We've got the national co-chair of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Nina Turner calls in. We'll ask her about, well, how are they going to pay for all this stuff? Coming up only on Sound On. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes by downloading the Bloomberg Business app or by checking us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Panel stays. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We are waiting to get Nina Turner on the line. She's national co-chair of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. We're going to ask her all about the upcoming Democratic presidential debate. Sahil Kapoor is here while we wait for Nina. Sahil Kapoor is Bloomberg News national political correspondent, as is Daniel Lippman, he is, covers all things the White House for Politico. And Lauren Zelt, Republican strategist, co-founder of Zelt Communications. Sahil, what are you looking for the Sanders campaign to do to differentiate themselves from Elizabeth Warren? Well, this is a complex question for Bernie Sanders because going after her, attacking Elizabeth Warren, is not going to be a good look for him. They, the two mostly agree on the issues. The debate could be, the first night of the debate could be a love fest between those two because I especially don't see any incentive for Elizabeth Warren, who's been rising in the polls, chipping away at Bernie Sanders' support to go after him. But what's he going to do? I suspect what he's going to do, Kevin, is point out that he has been offering the same message for decades. He has been talking about the need to raise the minimum wage, the need to expand the safety net. Um, the need to change the structure of politics so uh, money has less of an influence for a long time and the Democratic Party has caught up with him. The first night of the debate is going to be a battle for the progressive lane. The second night of the debate, Kamala Harris versus Joe Biden, the rematch. The rematch. The rematch. More than anything else, it's going to be a battle for the black vote, which has been utterly essential to the last five open contested Democratic I, you know, Again, Saho, you know, I, a huge fan of Saho Kapoor, just going to say that. But I kind of disagree with him because here's where I disagree, Lauren, because I don't think it's just about the African-American vote. I think it's like Joe Biden has to show that he can fight. Right. I mean, he's got a lot of us political watchers. And again, most of the country hasn't plugged in. But would you agree that he's got to show that, you know, he gave that interview on Morning Joe where he's like, come on, man, I can fight. Well, like he's got to show that he can throw a political punch. No doubt. He cannot stumble again. And I, I don't disagree with your point at all. 
Um, my theory is in terms of constituencies, Thank what you, are the Sasha. strongest one that, that they're going after? I think it's African-American voters. But you're right. Yeah. Joe Biden cannot be, have another moment like that where He's he still gets, number one. He is still number one and pretty much consistently so. He has lost some, he has lost some points since the first debate, and Harris has clearly risen since the first debate. But Biden has to show that, that he can take a punch, that he can counter, and that he won't be caught like last time failing to show some empathy when Kamala Harris launches a personal scathing attack. Lars Saha and I were talking to the break, and Littman, I know you, got, you heard this, but I, I, don't, I don't think that anyone expects for Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to go like politically nuclear against one another the first night of the debate. But the Warren campaign has been doing slow and steady, marathon, not a sprint. Eye on the prize. And she really hasn't dipped or gone up. She's just hovered in the top tier candidates. So I don't think she's really going to go after anyone. But John Delaney's on that stage. And I know everyone's counting him out. But John Delaney, just because he needs to have a breakout moment, I think he will definitely try to contrast himself aggressively against someone like a Sanders or a Warren. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely possible, especially on the heels of reports um, that some of his own staff has asked him to drop out of the race. He needs to do he needs to have a breakout moment. You're right. But, you know, I think that you're also right, too, Kevin, in that it's a little bit early for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren to go at each other's throats. But at some point, they're going to have to because they essentially share the same lane in terms of their message. And she's saying it's I oh, I can hear the Warren crowd just totally grimacing for what I'm about to say. But this is what I think she's playing the Ted Cruz playbook, which is, yeah. you know, I'm electable. I'm the liberal who's electable. Cruz said that she but that's her argument. I mean, I see it. But Cruz campaign said, I'm the conservative that's electable. If you don't want Trump, vote Cruz. Remember that? Yeah. And now she's going to say, if you don't want, if you you know, win with Warren is their, is their slogan. Sure. And you're absolutely right. Ted, Ted Cruz did do that in 2016. I'm not saying it worked. I'm not saying I no. I'm just a reporter. I report the facts. <laughs> I mean, it, it was very funny to watch a lot of conservatives and Republicans find themselves cheering for Ted Cruz. Um, you know, towards the end of the of the 2016 primary. Funny, I found it ironic. Because it was very so I was ironic. Dying to get it. Yeah, but I just I don't I don't think Elizabeth Warren is electable. She's just entirely too far to the left. Moderate Republicans and independents, I don't think are going to go for her just because of how far left she is. Littman, well, Sahil, the, the one like the, playing the teacher, single biggest difference between the 2016 Republican primary and the the Democratic 2020 primary in terms of strategy is that. The Democrats who matter are going after the front runner. The Republicans didn't lay a finger on the front runner, Donald Trump, until maybe January or so. And that was Ted Cruz. And Rubio loses South Carolina and suddenly discovers that he has to go after Donald Trump because he's a front runner. This time you had Kamala Harris go after Joe Biden in the first debate. It's it like, a big difference. Yeah, and no, Warren took, an, took aim at, at Joe Biden uh, shortly after he launched. We, we talked oh. about the bankruptcy bill in 2005. Yeah. Go ahead, Lemme. Well, I think there's a lot of Democratic operatives, if you, if you talk to them, they will say that they used to be against Warren, and now that she, you know, that she's won them over. I and agree. So that, That's what I hear. That That's you, hear. Uh, when you talk to them, uh, they say, well, she was unelectable before, but she's become a much better candidate, uh, and she is better on the stump and is more charismatic and could actually win over the country if she gets that national platform of a, a, a nomination. And so they are not uh, – they are still skeptical that Sanders could win a uh, general election since he is kind of an avowed socialist. Well, uh, but it's, it's harder to accuse – Warren of being a socialist, she's more of a let's fix the system. Of course, there are going to be radical fixes and major changes, 
but she's not a tear down this house. She was a professor at Harvard Law School, so it's not like she's out of the total mainstream. Well, a lot of the financial crowd last week when we were talking about the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall, my phone was blowing up because they were like, Glass-Steagall! I mean, like, if you ever want to see some bankers get nervous, just mention two words, Glass and Steagall. Coming up, we're going to talk more about politics. Hopefully we can get Nina Turner on the line from the Sanders campaign. I'll ask her about Glass-Steagall. If not, we're going to talk more policy and politics. Panel stays. Download the Sound On podcast by downloading Apple iTunes by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. Check us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. If they want to make a deal, it's, it's frankly, it's getting harder for me to want to make a deal with the run because they behave very badly. That was President Trump speaking earlier today. Uncertainty whether or not he will get a deal with Iran. This is Iran has locked in a worsening political standoff with Western powers. They've they've handed down death sentences to several nationals who they're accusing of being part of the CIA. Uh, that, of course, is something that the U.S. is totally denying. President Trump tweeting out earlier today that that is, quote, unquote, totally false. And breaking news, breaking news tonight, the president did get a deal with Congress. President Trump just tweeting out within the last minute, quote, I am pleased to announce that a deal has been struck with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Speaker of the House Pelosi, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on a two-year budget and debt ceiling with no point. Poison pills. This was a real compromise in order to give another big victory to our great military and vets. End quote. The president tweeting it out. Redhead on the Bloomberg terminal. Trump says lawmakers have reached deal on debt limit suspension. And we've got an all-star panel to dive into this. Lauren Zelt, Republican strategist, founder of Zelt Communications. Daniel Lippman, White House reporter, reporter at Politico. And Sahil Kapoor, who is Bloomberg News national political correspondent, they got a deal, Sahil. And now we'll see if it has the votes to pass. Do you I think, think it does? At this point, I think the president's tweets help. Tweet yeah. helps get Republican support. They were bleeding a little bit on the right with conservatives. Some of them said the spending cuts or the spending increases are too much. Not enough of them are offset. But you have a Trump tweet endorsing something, and every Republican is going to think twice about coming out against it. Go on vacation, Laura. Yep. Or debate the debt ceiling <laughs> i mean i think you can hear the lawmakers being like please just schedule this vote <laughs> i think it's no uh, coincidence that we're here at the end of july <laughs> august recess is on the horizon but no i think so hill's right anytime the president puts his full weight behind something it puts republicans especially those from you know ruby red states or districts it puts them in a pickle even if they're fiscally conservative pickle. Going against the president when he's when he's come out strongly for something like this deal is very difficult. And if they go against it, they're probably going to hear from their constituents back home. So whether it's fiscally conservative or not, I think the president backing it strongly means that it likely will pass. Game, set, match. I agree. I don't I don't see how I don't see how they don't get a deal. Litman. But it would also suggest that in the middle of what I would say is one of the most heated rhetorical weeks in American politics where the president has used racial rhetoric 
uh, to attack four freshman congresswomen. And there's the back and forth, the political ping pong back and forth, back and forth that we've seen that even continue today, where the president tweeted out that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other members of the so-called squad, as they call themselves, that that is didn't really matter. Speaker Pelosi, President Trump, they were able to hammer out a two-year deal. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people have you know, resolved to try to get business done for the American people instead of uh, worry about Trump's attacks. He's always going to attack his political enemies, uh, and his you know his cabinet members will attack their people who are against them too, like Wilbur Ross did with. Uh, my story today. Yeah, you had that story today so. that pretty much said that no one. I mean, I, and respectfully, I know a lot of people who like Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. But no one, yeah, no, no one's saying that. Uh, you know, he's a bad guy or that he's unlikable. It's, I guess, just my story revealed uh, is that Commerce is rudderless and that he is focused too much on winning favor at the White House with Trump and keeping his job than actually. Uh, talking to employees or even holding staff meetings, uh, and there's worries that uh, you know he'll fall asleep, and so and he, which he's done in multiple meetings uh, over his tenure, and so uh, they were pretty angry about Jeez. that story. If you read All that right. tweet, well, she, I mean, but 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 as you move forward, though, Lauren, in terms of again this breaking news just happening within the last five minutes, that President Trump tweeting out that they have reached a deal with lawmakers for a two-year budget and debt ceiling deal uh, to raise the debt limit. This, of course, has been something that Republicans have said they don't want to do. Hardliner Republicans, Freedom Caucus, ultra-conservative Republicans. Then I interviewed some Democrats who were like, get rid of the debt limit altogether. And I'm like, well, then there's that debate that rages on. But here we are, a two-year deal. So I guess the next time we'll do this will be after, oh, my gosh. The election. Oh, my gosh. Yep. You guys, we didn't even – the last debt ceiling fight we get before the election, Lar. R.I.P. debt ceiling fights. No. <laughs> Sahil, is this good or bad for the for, – for, I mean, it's great for the – I mean, I think it's a good thing for the credit, right? I, I think, Kevin, this was Talking a, a golden opportunity for Congress to abolish the debt limit. The only way it would happen is under a Republican president. You know Republicans would never allow that under a Democratic president. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that House Democrats view this as a headache and a nuisance and they're not going to want to take it hostage the way uh, House Republicans led by uh, it, led by someone including uh, Mick Mulvaney, now the White House Chief of Staff, ironically did in 2011. But they didn't do that. It looks like there's a cohort of centrist Democrats in the House that genuinely does care about the deficit through Republican and Democratic presidencies, which has not been the case for everybody else. Lauren? Yeah, you know, I mean, I just think the timing is very interesting, you know, obviously kicking it until after the election. But you're right. Republicans wouldn't have let that happen under a Democratic administration. But I do think you'll have a lot of fiscal conservatives upset with this. I think they'll probably vote against it. But ultimately, I think it'll pass because Republicans will be reticent to disagree with the president. So I'm just fascinated by all this because, again, the backdrop is the president sparring an aggressive rhetoric against four freshman congresswomen uh, in rhetoric that I I would argue we have not seen and really ever in this administration, and he, and you know, even Kellyanne Conway, when she was speaking at the White House earlier today, going on the offensive, doubling down in that criticism, continuing to to draw those political attacks. President Trump tweeting out this morning that uh, this was that that they calling them racists, 
Um, you know, we all remember last week where Speaker Pelosi had that vote on the House floor condemning this. But in the middle of all of that, I mean, this is huge. In the middle of all of that, Speaker Pelosi was working the phones on with every night, virtually every night, with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin to hammer out a two-year budget and debt ceiling deal. And there's going to be no debt ceiling fight between now and Election Day, provided this thing gets voted on, Sahil. What messaging does that pose? Or how does Speaker Pelosi play this tonight? Does she say, look, I was able to get this deal in the middle of this awful, horrific week? Or is she going to face people on the left who say, why are you doing that? Impeach the guy. Kevin, I I think her message is, A, this is not optional. The government has to be funded. The debt limit has to be extended. There is no way Congress can refuse to do this. Now, she can go to her members and sell the fact that Democrats secured uh, one-to-one parity, and at least we believe they did based on the contours of the deal so far, one-to-one parity in domestic spending increases and military spending increases. They got something like 80 to 90 cents on the dollar last year when they were in the minority, and they upped the ante this time. So there's certainly something for progressives to like in this deal in in the form of higher domestic spending. And beyond that, she can say, look, I'm dealing with a Republican president. I'm dealing with a Republican Senate. What exactly do you want from me? Well, what do they want from her, Lauren? I mean, I think what you hear from a lot of Democrats, you know, I talk to a lot of Democrats. I I have many Democrat friends, if you might imagine. And, And a lot of them are very frustrated on the impeachment issue in general. I think that Nancy Pelosi is being smart um, to not really pursue it aggressively. I know they had that vote um, recently, and I know it did not go very, uh, very far. But a lot of Democrats out there are they are uh, tired of of the president, and they're and they're upset with Speaker Pelosi for not impeaching or not beginning impeachment proceedings. Now, ultimately, though, I think that. This is not going to be the debt ceiling deal is not going to be talked about as much as the feud between the president and the squad, as as you alluded to earlier, Kevin. And, you know, while I've got the mic on it, I just not to go all Marianne Williamson on everybody. But Ooh, I, where I, are you going with this? I'm excited. No, but I mean, namaste. I don't understand why more people don't just say that the rhetoric on both sides needs to stop. I understand that. Everyone's been saying that forever. Well, but more prominent lawmakers need to come out. What an optimist you are. And say that. You know, I think our politics right now, we are sort of at the apex of a pendulum swing. I think everything is very hot. I don't know what's going to have to happen to bring it back down. It is quite literally hot. Yeah. It's very hot hot. outside. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry not to be. No, no, no. (laughs) I don't don't know what's going to bring us back down to a place of more respectful rhetoric. I don't think that we can stay here for very long because I think the long-term consequences are very severe. You know what I think? I mean, I'm about to get on a soapbox. I apologize. I just mentioned Marianne Williamson. Yeah, you're allowed. Can I? Okay, I appreciate that. Lauren. I appreciate <laughs> it. And you're up here. You're based in North Carolina now. Yes. So, I mean, you're in D.C. All She's I a real American. Is, you know now. what it is? Just, like, talk how you want others to talk to of you. Course. Yeah. What's on your radar, Lippman? You got less than a minute. Go. Uh, Soccer tomorrow night at FedEx so- Field. Yes. For everyone listening. No, I, I think uh, Lauren makes a good point that uh you know, if you look at what Pelosi is and Mnuchin are trying to do, they don't think that this is a fight worth having, that the American people's interest should be put up uh, at first. Uh, and, you know, Mnuchin can say what he wants to protect the president on the racist stuff, 
but uh, that's not uh, their angle right now. All right, we're going to leave it there. Again, breaking news tonight. President Trump says lawmakers have reached a deal on the debt limit suspension. Two-year deal. Two-year deal. Now the question becomes, will Republicans get on board? Do they have the votes? I want to thank our panel, Lauren Zelt, Daniel Lippman, Sahil Kapoor. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.